0: Thank you so much for
1: joining us on this special edition of the Good Fight Radio Show. On today's show, we have Wesley Huff out of Canada, and we are so excited to talk with him today about a number of topics that for a lot of Christians, they may be thrown off by them. They may have a tough time answering. And we are having Wes on today to share these things because they are so important. So we want to we- welcome Wesley Huff, to the Good Fight Radio Show.
2: Thanks, Chad. Pleasure to be here.
1: Well, you know, I have been excited about being able to do this interview because I came along some of your material a long time ago. You do an excellent job, and maybe I'll get some of the guys to grab some of those Im- infographics that you do. And I had seen one you'd done on NICEA, the Council of NICEA, which we'll get to, but before we get into that and some of the apologetics that... You're doing over there in Canada and now all over the world really I'd love to know how it is you came to know Christ and not only how you came to know Christ but why you started delving into the apologetic field
2: yeah that's a great question um I grew up in a Christian home uh, my dad was a pastor both my my parents were missionaries. I was actually born in Pakistan, which you wouldn't necessarily be able to tell from my complexion. But I was born in Pakistan where my parents were working, and I spent a portion of my childhood in the Middle East. And that impacted and reflected a lot of the work that I'm actually doing now here in in Canada. Uh, But my faith journey actually started after my parents had come back from overseas, where just before my 11th birthday, I was homesick on a Wednesday afternoon, home from school. I'd uh, been camping out on the bathroom floor for reasons we won't necessarily go into. And I had woken up from a nap mid-afternoon, and I couldn't feel my legs. And so after uh, a number of times trying to figure out, you know, were they asleep? Did I just, you know, lie down funny? And nothing happening. I called my mom. My mom eventually called an ambulance, and I was rushed to a couple of hospitals and eventually diagnosed with a rare neurological condition that left me paralyzed from the waist down. And so what the doctors told me had happened, the Kohl's notes version, is that my body's immune system, instead of attacking the flu that I had, attacked the nerve endings at the base of my spinal cord, causing swelling and leaving me paralyzed from the waist down. And it was actually the, the doctors who said, you know, we, we don't know what the recovery process will be like, but you will probably not walk again. And uh, spoiler alert for the listeners who can't see my legs, um, I, I I do walk now. Uh, I walk perfectly. In fact, uh, I competed in varsity track and field all through uh, my undergraduate university year. So obviously something happened. And my the, the short, short version of that story is that one month from the day that I woke up on February 8th, or sorry, I woke up on January 8th and couldn't feel my legs. I woke up on February 8th, one month exactly to the day. And i got up on a saturday morning got out of bed and walked over to my wheelchair and sat down and that was it that was the the tall and the short of it um on on my end a little bit more short than tall but uh and when i eventually did go back and you know had a a checkup with those doctors they were the ones who threw around the word miracle first they said we really don't have a medical explanation uh, there's there's no side effects. There seems to be no evidence of muscle atrophy. Um, and so that that marked a very powerful supernatural experience in my life. I, I truly believe that God healed me in that moment. And yet, despite that very powerful supernatural experience of having a a situation in my life where, you know, my my family is praying. Um, there are people around me who were, uh, you know, uh, calling on God for him to glorify the family, me, uh, in this situation, and then having that healing happen. Um, despite all of that, I really struggled in my teen years, not necessarily a crisis of faith, but really wrestling with some of those questions, those big intellectual questions, um, different questions that I asked when I was an 11-year-old, where I was you know, asking questions late at night about why this event, would happen to me? You know, why do bad things happen to supposedly good people? I was asking those questions as an 11 year old. But when I was in high school, here in in Ontario, I really struggled with questions of whether what I believed was true to begin with. So I figured my parents raised me to believe in Christianity. And that if I believed it, because they raised me to do it, you know, it wasn't necessarily the worst reason but it also wasn't the best. And so in my latter teen years, I really started investigating some of the faith and uh, objective truth claims that that the worldview that I was raised in claimed, but also other worldviews. You know, as I mentioned, I was a missionary kid and I had a very unusual circumstance in that I could walk into the living room and there was a copy of the Quran. There was a copy of the Book of Mormon, of the Bhagavad Gita, the sutras. You know, we, we had a, a family that, saw this type of other religious and worldview literature as uh, not a threat that Christianity, we believed was true objectively, but that all these other worldview perspectives, you know, we need to understand them. And and it's not a danger uh, to a certain degree to have them in our house, to be aware of them, to be, to be educated and not ignorant on that thing. So I had a, I had a unique experience in the sense that I could investigate those things from the the sources, and in in my case, a lot of the time, although the internet was around, so you could Google things, uh, but uh, I could read those from you know the the physical hard copies of of the the various translations of the Quran that my dad had uh, on the shelf, and so um, and all the other literature, and and so it was by investigating those things, and then encountering objections that really really made my uh, intellectual itch kind of go, hmm, you know, what is going on there? Specifically and related to the Bible, which we're going to talk about, which uh, I eventually did go down that rabbit hole to getting, you know, graduate degrees and and uh, now I'm doing my my PhD at the University of Toronto in that in a, adjacent field, a related field to the history of the early transmission of the New Testament text. But it was investigating those questions and then feeling, you know, Yes, the Christian worldview, uh, not only is it, it applicable, not only is it relevant, but it is true. And by investigating and looking at the evidence, the public evidence that's available, I can come to those conclusions, even over and above investigating other worldview perspectives. So it was a long road. It, it, it was a, a road that uh, incorporated aspects of, you know, my childhood and experiencing things that, you know, let's be honest, a lot of people don't necessarily experience Um, and having a background in uh, living in, you know, a a cultural context, which wasn't Christian, wasn't secular, uh, was actually majority Muslim. And then coming back to Canada and uh, looking at some of these things, it was all those things together that you see God connecting the dots and leading to me where I am today. And so apologetics, looking for those answers, looking for the reasons for the hope that we have, as Peter says in his letter, uh, that was a big part in sort of the stepping stones for the the Holy Spirit leading me to coming to the conclusion that Christianity was in fact true.
1: Wow, that is amazing. From one (laughs) miraculous thing that took place all the way to saying, hey, I also want an intellectual uh, view of scripture and loving God with my mind as well. And I I think that is so awesome. And there really is a different approach, I would say, by both of them, one being a more theological in the sense of Michael J. Kruger. He does historical as well, but also with Craig Evans, where he deals more with a historical answer or argument for canon. But I'd love to maybe start our process in dealing with understanding why we believe the scriptures we have, with understanding the difference between a a theological argument for canon and a historical argument for canon, and maybe the one that you, uh, I guess, you would ascribe to most and and deal with the most in your field.
2: Yeah, I think that's a great way of putting it uh because— when we're talking about canon, and for the listeners who who don't necessarily uh, know what that word means, we're not talking about uh, a, a giant firearm implement that shoots balls at uh, <laughs> at, at city walls. Uh, what we're talking about is the canon of Scripture in particular being a word that means a, a rule or a list. That's what the Greek word canon means. It, it means a, a rule, a standard, a, a dividing line. And so the way we, we use it for Scripture is literally... Uh, to differentiate from the books that were authoritative, were uh, inspired, were held a level of authority for as being, you know, that which God spoke um, as Peter, or rather Paul says to Timothy, you know, uh, all scripture is uses this Greek word theopnostos, God breathed. Uh, when we're talking about the canon of scripture, we're talking about those books. And in a very real sense, uh, like you mentioned, there's a differentiation between the theological canon and the historical canon, and I think that's appropriate, because at the end of the day, as Christians, when we're talking about the canon, we're talking about what God inspired over and above everything else, you know, what, what God uh, breathed into, to use that Pauline language, and uh, incorporated both the original authors, but working through, in, in some way, the Holy Spirit also, in communicating his word, his truth to us. And in a very powerful way, I think understanding that this, especially for the Christian, first and foremost, is a theological topic. We're talking about what God has communicated to us through his word. Uh, That's an important thing to understand. Now, sort of dovetailing to that is what's sometimes referred to as the historical canon. And the historical canon are, you know, how did these books come together? What were the catalysts and mechanisms that allowed The whether it was the early church or uh, the the Jews previously, to come up with a list of authoritative books that they said, you know, these are spoken by God. We don't deny that there are particular authors, you know, Moses, David, Solomon, uh, Jeremiah, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, Paul, Jude, James, all those guys. We don't deny that they are the authors, but at the same time, there's something different. There's something special about it that kind of underlies that text. And I think um, when we're talking about the historical canon, uh, there's kind of a a more filled out type of of discipline that we can investigate, because the fact is that there are other books floating around, Um, whether we're talking about what's sometimes called the apocrypha formal, which is, uh, you know, in the Catholic Bible, they call them deuterocanonical books, the second canon. That's what deuterocanonical means, where they have other books in their Old Testament than the 66 books that we have in the Protestant Bible, or whether we're talking about other gospels that were written in the subsequent centuries after the death of Jesus. You know, we're familiar with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, but what about Thomas? What about the gospel of Peter? What about the gospel of Philip or Mary Magdalene or the gospel of Judas? What do we do with these other books. And so it's in investigating the historical canon, why some books were recognized as authoritative over and above other books that we really start to dig into, okay, uh, there were criteria, at least to some degree, um, but it wasn't that some book or rather some group, some council, some individual chose these books. Uh, There was a unanimous consensus, at least to some degree, although there was disagreement here and there, on what the authoritative bulk of the scriptures were, and that came to a close at, at a certain point in time. And so there's a lot of historical questions that we can dig into specifically there. Um, but understanding that, you know there's a there's a big profound theological component to this, talking about something like the doctrine of inspiration, as well as understanding that these are books that existed in history, and that individuals within history, particularly the church, wrestled with a lot of these books to make sure that they were uh, that they were true, that they came from the individuals that kind of headed the titles. Whether we're talking about uh, that being Matthew, Mark, or Paul, or Luke, or uh, even to a certain degree uh, with the Old Testament guys like Moses or Solomon, um, and so. Uh, that's an important question as well, that uh, academics and theologians uh, alike really delve into and and get into the nitty gritty. Uh,
1: I love that, and I love for people to understand the, that different definition, because I think a lot of times those can be somewhat convoluted, and people go, oh, well, you know, the whole Bible actually got put together, and they were chosen, and specifically, mm-hmm. there's this really ominous council in Nicaea where the books of the Bible were actually chosen by the council there. And so maybe as somebody who is clearly studied on this subject, you could give us kind of an overview because I think Nicaea is, has become this boogeyman uh, for whether you're, and you've dealt with, I'm sure explaining the gospel to Muslims or whether you know you're dealing with somebody who really likes the Da Vinci Code or whatever. you know, the fact is is that Nicaea really has become this boogeyman, And I'd love for you to give an overview on maybe what Nicaea really was.
2: Yeah, the the Council of Nicaea was an event that took place in 325 AD. And it was a council called specifically to address a theological question about the nature of the Son of God, Jesus, within the Godhead of the Trinity. And and so, yeah, like you said, uh, there's a lot of... uh, A lot of different topics that are sort of dropped onto the Council of Nicaea that I think if we were to go back in time, hop in our time machine and talk to, you know, any of the individuals at the Council of Nicaea, they'd be very surprised, uh, maybe a little bit confused as to why their that particular council and their responsibility was then responsible for something like the, the divinity of Christ or the canon of scripture or, you know, removing something important from the pages of scripture. I think at the end of the day, uh, what we can say is that we know what the Council of Nicaea was about. It was about a particular controversy with a particular individual named Arius. Arius was teaching that that Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, was part of the Godhead, but that he was created at a point in time. So his famous line is, there was a time when the Son was not. And that in that way, Jesus was a lesser divine character within the Godhead and that the Father was a a greater being. The the Father was the preeminent Yahweh and Jesus was almost like a lesser Yahweh within the Godhead. And that's what the Council of Nicaea was about. And there was a lesser issue with the date of Easter. But predominantly, it was a conversation about getting the theological language and articulation of who The son of God is and how we understand what we see within the pages of scripture with the father being Yahweh, the son being Yahweh and the spirit being Yahweh. And yet it's fundamental to both Judaism and Christianity that it's monotheistic. There's only one God. And so how do we understand this and how do we articulate that truth at the same time? That's what the Christological controversies that culminated at the Council of Nicaea were about. There's no evidence, there's no talk of any discussion of what books should or shouldn't be scripture or are or aren't in the canon. In fact, what we do see about scripture in something like the documents of the Council of Nicaea is that, they quote scripture as if it's already accepted and understood as being authoritative and inspired. This is true for any of the ecumenical councils and the first council of Nicaea sort of kicked that off, but there were subsequent councils. There was another council of Nicaea. There was a council of Chalcedon. Um, All of them, what we see is that scripture is employed. It's used and it's, it's recognized as authoritative. They're not debating whether, you know, we should be quoting this over that because there's some question as to whether, you know, the gospel of Peter was actually scripture over and above the gospel of of Matthew. That's all myth. Uh, Anybody who tells you that that's part of that language and that discussion within Nicaea, uh, they're either completely misunderstanding what did take place, rather, at Nicaea, or they're just completely misinformed, uh, because when we actually look at what did happen at Nicaea, it has nothing to do with choosing books. And in fact, individuals within church history—remember, this is in in the early three hundreds. We can go to the we can go to the two hundreds. Uh, we can go to the the one hundreds even um, with some uh, writings that that were written by early church individuals, um, written uh, in, the, in the latter half of the first century, um, uh, what we refer to as First Clement or the, the letter uh, to Rome, or sorry, from Rome. Um, these books, we can analyze the way that they're using what later was officially referred to as the New Testament canon, the way they're quoting it, the way that they're referencing it. And we can see, you know, very early on, There's a fundamental recognition that there are books that were being written by individuals following Jesus's resurrection that hold the authority that Jesus imparted on the apostles or books that were written like a book like the gospel of Mark or the gospel of Luke that weren't written by apostles, but have a clear connection to the apostolic community. uh, Mark through Peter and Luke through Paul. And that these books have that level of authority of inspiration. So there's a there's a common understanding far before Nicaea, far before anyone is, was even born at the Council of Nicaea, as to what letters, what gospels, what epistles were and weren't scripture. And there were lots of discussions by uh, individuals like Irenaeus, um, who were condemning other works that... Uh, that we're starting to have the names of other apostles associated with them, uh, condemning those as false, as ones that couldn't reliably be trans uh, connected to, transmitted from an actual apostle.
1: No, I think that's uh, amazing when you really get down to it and you see those writings from the early church, as you clearly uh, stated there. Yeah, I think uh, Irenaeus was so clear about the number four being the four gospels when you read. From him, but there are these Mm -hmm. other books. And when I turn on even the History Channel, or you know, maybe BBC's got some documentary going on, I'm told over and over again that there was equal footing, and that you know what they they were just debating. There was really 20 different gospels, and they were debating over and over again. Hey, what about the Gospel of Peter? Did Peter write that? Or hey, what? This is what the early church, and it was so just convoluted in the early church that, as Walter Bauer would say, right, it, that we just don't know, they didn't know, and these guys just just won, this. The, they just won out. So if I was looking at these books, the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the Gospel of Judas, how would I know those actually aren't supposed to be in our Bibles today?
2: Yeah, it's a great question, and, and you mentioned Walter Bauer there. Walter Bauer was a, a New Testament scholar, Um, who published uh, a writing called Heresy and Orthodoxy in Earliest Christianities. He published that in 1934 in Germany. And it kind of went undercover for a long time uh, until it was uh, published in English in 1971, where uh, it kind of got into the broader context of New Testament scholarship, particularly within North America. And what Walter Bauer claimed there was what is referred to as the Christianities theory, that, as you said, Doug, there are these other groups. There's the Ebionites, there's the Docetics, there's the Gnostics, and they all claim to be Christians. And that's true, they did. And they all claim to have a connection to Jesus, and they have other Gospels that refer to Jesus in very different ways than, say, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John do. That's reality. Those other Gospels exist. And so the Christianity's theory that Walter Bauer promoted, uh, the Bauer Thesis— as it's sometimes called, is that all of these documents have a level of credibility, that there were all these different groups with their own books, and the only reason you uh, believe that it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and uh, articulate historical Orthodox Christianity is because the group that won out then espoused that particular narrative and theological vein. And so within this theory kind of equal footing to, at least to some degree, is given to all of the other writings. Now, what we can do simply, um, even just connecting to the historical canon, is uh, simply evaluate things and say, okay, well, I myself am a trained historian. That's part of what I do in my doctoral research. And if I was a historian of anything, say, I want to be a historian of Abraham Lincoln. So what sources am I going to go to to try to derive the truthfulness of what actually happened in Lincoln's life. Well, I'm not going to go to something like uh, Abraham Lincoln, zombie Hunter, you know, the low budget film that came out in, I can't remember when it was (laughs) 2015 or something. Um, That's not a reliable independent source for Abraham Lincoln's life. Right. I'm going to go to, or I'm going to strive to go to people who knew Lincoln, who reported things that were happening around Lincoln's life to credible accurate eyewitness testimony of the events and the times and the places. And so that's just what good historians do for anything. I do that for Lincoln and I do that for Jesus. And so when I want to know, okay, who is this Jesus of Nazareth guy? Well, I'm going to go to the earliest sources I possibly could. And when we actually evaluate that evidence, what we find is that the biographies, the, the stories of Jesus's life that come at the earliest are what we refer to as the gospel biographies, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the letters that we refer to as the twenty-seven books of the New Testament, those are the earliest source material for the life and the times of Jesus and his immediate followers, by his immediate followers in, in a lot of instances. And so, if we're talking about, say, um, the Gospel of Peter, well, that's coming around at the middle to the 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 middle of the second century to the middle of the third century. You know, we're talking about decades and and centuries afterwards. Um, Likewise, the the Gospel of Thomas, same sort of timeline, uh, somewhere in the the middle of the second century to the the middle of the the third century. Um, And that's true for all of these other documents, whether we're talking about the Gospel of Truth, the Gospel of the Hebrews, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Peter, um, the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. All of these come at a later point in time, When we know that the names attached to their titles, Thomas, Philip, Peter, Mary, are dead. And so there's no accurate historical connection between the title of the individual that supposedly is recording these events or is the source for these events and the actual content information. It's not independent. In fact, when those documents do get accurate historical facts, right? They're almost completely dependent on the fourfold gospel canon of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, There's a lot of dependency going on for some of these gospel stories. And uh, there's clear embellishment in them. They clearly articulate theological perspectives that come at a later point in time that we can pinpoint to decades and centuries after Christ. Uh, particular philosophical theories like Gnosticism that became very popular in the second and third centuries, um, we know came into fruition in the way that they're articulated, say in the Gospel of Philip or the Gospel of um, Gospel of Mary. We know that the what they espouse coming off the lips of Jesus and the apostles that developed in the second and third centuries. So, because the content can be Trace No earlier than the second century. Well, obviously it's not coming from the first century. Um, So there are lots of different markers that we can look at as to why these are historically accurate or not. But at the end of the day, when we're dealing with just straight historical facts, the only documents that get us into an early picture from either someone who knew Jesus or someone who knew someone who knew Jesus are what we refer to as the 27 books of our New Testament. There's really little to no debate about that. Some people like to push the Gospel of Thomas uh, into the first century. I have a blog, fo- blog post on my, my website. Um, I think it's titled something like uh, why, the, why I Date the Gospel of Thomas late, um, and I articulate the reasons why. I, I don't think that that's even reasonable. Some scholars try to do that, but they're in, they're in a, a strong minority for the reasons that I articulate in that article. The earliest source material you find in your biblical New Testament.
1: Well, I think that's absolutely just vital. And I think there's even early church fathers that would talk about these gospels that the ink was still wet uh, because they were so modern to, to them. And, you know, the apostles had already passed on. And so I, I, I really do believe that's important. And you brought up uh, the Bauer thesis. I guess we both did. But, uh, but nonetheless, when, it, when I think about a popularizer of the Bauer thesis, I think of Dr. Bart Ehrman. And he is one of the more popular guys out there. And, in fact, I've watched deconstruction story after deconstruction story from all these, you know, quote-unquote, you know, ex-Christians or ex-evangelicals. And a lot of times it starts, it starts with, you know, a biblical sexual ethic that they disagree with. But also, like Rhett and Link were very popular YouTubers. And one of the things they brought up were the books of Dr. Bart And so maybe people aren't as familiar with him and why a lot of times if you're somebody like we love sharing the gospel on the streets, you may hear his arguments from Muslims, from atheists, uh, even from Mormons. I've heard them actually, funny enough, uh, out on the streets and you might not even know it. So maybe if you could explain kind of who he is and why some of his, I guess, more popularized views uh, aren't so trustworthy.
2: Yeah. Bart Ehrman is a, he's a professor of religious studies at UNC Chapel Hill. Uh, he is a legitimate, what's referred to as a textual critic. So he did his, uh, his own doctoral research under a guy named, um, Metzger, Bruce Metzger, who was one of the most influential New Testament textual critics of the 20th century. And, um, and so uh, or in the 21st century as well, um, he's been a huge influence on that field as a whole. And so there is a lot of genuine credibility to the background and expertise of someone like Bart Ehrman. Uh, Bart Ehrman wrote a, a number of books. Um, actually, you might be able to even to see some of them on my bookshelf, bookshelf behind me. Um, but uh, he, he wrote um, Misquoting Jesus, which kind of was the one that went viral uh, it was actually, I see it behind me. Um, I'll pull it out. misquoting Jesus, the story behind who changed the Bible and why. And that was the one, you know, became a New York times bestseller. I believe in the, the weeks that it was actually published, it, uh, hit number one on Amazon. It was very, very popular. And one of the reasons behind that was that Bart Ehrman, uh, is able to synthesize and translate a field that is, is, a field that I, uh, it's sort of an adjacent field to the research that I do, a very related field to the research that I do. It's a very technical discipline. And he was able to translate a lot of that in very simple language and get people interested in a field that otherwise was kind of relegated to the ivory towers and the intellectual institutions. And and there's a lot of benefit in that. And actually, I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of uh, good sort of explanatory aspects of a book like Misquoting Jesus. The problem is, I think, a person like Bart Ehrman makes a lot over a little, and I think he plays loose and fast with the data. He often presents the data in a way that actually, in a lot of instances, I would agree with, but it's not necessarily the data. It's the conclusion that he therefore draws from the data. So for those of those of the listeners who don't know, the field of textual criticism It looks at all the copies you have of a particular ancient document. So textual criticism is done with the New Testament and the Old Testament, but it's also done with other works of ancient literature. It's done with Xenophon, it's done with Plato, it's done with Tacitus and Pliny and uh, Cicero. All of these ancient writers have... Individuals who do text-critical research in analyzing the text in the different copies with the purpose of trying to trace back an original text. Because when you have handwritten copies, manuscripts, you tend to have things that creep into the text, whether purposeful or unintentional. A lot of these are just mistakes by a scribe that it was completely unintentional. But anytime you have something that's handwritten, you're bound to have some variants within those. And so the more copies you have, the more variants you have. And when we're dealing with something like the New Testament, we have thousands and tens of thousands in different languages, but thousands in the Greek, um, of copies of these documents. And so you have a, a lot of differentiation in the text. You have, as I said before, um, things that are very clearly mistakes, but the benefit of having so many is that you can compare and contrast them and use that as a foil to trace back the original text. And so Bart Ehrman presents a lot of data, which I wouldn't necessarily disagree with. In fact, I think when Misquoting Jesus was published in what, 2015 uh, mm-hmm. or something like that, um, 2016, the, uh, the numbers that he proposes for the number of textual variants, I think he says something like 400,000 textual variants. I think the numbers are actually higher than that now because of the research that's being done. So he presents this in a way that says, you know, there are one hundred thirty-eight thousand one hundred and sixty-two words in the Greek New Testament, but come on, who's counting? But you have, you know, approximately 140,000 words in the Greek New Testament. And then he says you have 400,000 differences within those, you have more variants, more mistakes, more differentiations than you do words. And so at face value, yeah, that that's pretty shocking. You know, a lot of people aren't aware of that when they just open say their new international version or their english standard version or their you know whatever english translation they're looking at they don't realize oh what well, more differences in the manuscript tradition than our words well How could I possibly trust what I have in my translation then? And so Ehrman, I think, in in very subtle ways, he presents information like that. He draws conclusions from that that really start to impact negatively the way we understand the text. Now, like you said, I I hear these types of uh, objections from all sorts, atheists, uh, Muslims, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Mormons, like you said, all all different kinds of skeptics of Christianity. Um, And the reason that they absolutely don't bother me in any way, shape, or form is because I've done the work that Bart Ehrman has done, at least on the base level of, you know, text-critical study in things like collating ancient manuscripts and counting variants. And and when you really get into the nitty-gritty, you find out, well, okay, there are differences within the manuscript tradition. But if you do open your, you know, NIV Bible... And you want to know those variances that actually make an impact on the text. Look at the footnote. They're almost always in the footnote. We're not hiding anything. And in fact, it's because of those differences that we have a profound uh, confidence in the text that we have. That it's it's not in spite of all those differences, but because of them, that we are able, 2,000 years later, to say, okay, well... When we evaluate all of this information, what do we find? Well, we find that actually the mistakes are really easy to pinpoint, and that the vast majority of these differences uh, make no impact on any translation you're doing in English uh, or any other language for that matter. They really have no difference spelling differences, word order differences, uh changing up uh, a sentence. Um, missing a sentence, you know, we can see these things and understand why they were done, and even intentional ones. Because there are so many copies, uh, we can see where this happens. A- and this doesn't just happen within handwritten documents. There's a uh, In one of my presentations, I like to point out the fact that there was a very important printing of the King James Bible in, 19- in 1631, where, in uh, Exodus twenty of the Ten Commandments, the word "not in thou shalt not commit adultery was mistakenly left out, okay, well, that results in the phrase "Thou shalt commit adultery well, that's an obvious mistake, right? We can understand that there wasn't some conspiracy behind the uh you know producers of that particular stream of King James printed editions that wanted to get Christians to start committing adultery or he was or she was committing adultery, and so they wanted to justify it, so just just remove it from the Bible. Well, no, it's an obvious mistake. We can see why that happened. Um, And I think sometimes someone like Bart Ehrman, he looks at some of these textual variants and he starts to get in the mind of the scribe and explain, you know, maybe this is why he did this or this is why he did that. And there was some, you know, nefarious theological intention behind it. I think that's, for lack of a better way of putting it, it's just... At, at best, it's, it's poor reasoning, and at worst, it's going far beyond what the actual academic discipline of being able to come up with a conclusion actually merits.
1: Yeah, that's, that's interesting, because I've heard you speak to this, and I believe uh, Daniel Wallace did as well when he debated with him, but Bart Ehrman himself, what would he say concerning uh, these variants and whether or not they actually change any core doctrine of the Christian faith?
2: Yeah, actually, someone like Bart Ehrman, in the original printing of "Misquoting Jesus, Jesus, um, not this one, because this is a later reprint, but I have a digital copy of the first printing. There's uh, an appendix in the back where there's kind of a Q&A with the publisher and Bart Ehrman. And in the original printing, in that Q&A, there was a question that was asked uh, about, you know, how do these textual variants and differences within the manuscript impact essential Christian doctrines? And his answer was they don't. They don't impact any essential Christian doctrine. And I think that's important to understand. Now, that was actually left out of this one. You won't find it in any new printings. Um, and, you know, we can speculate on why that might be. Maybe the publisher thought it hurt sales. I don't know. But either way, uh, I, I would agree with Bart Ehrman in that sense and say that, that no, there, there are, there's no textual variant that impacts every essential or any essential Christian doctrine. The virgin birth, the incarnation, the divinity of Christ. Uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all being articulated and described as Yahweh God. You're going to get these things. You're going to get the, the the life, death, resurrection of Christ in the New Testament, whether there's the textual variants or not. Um, those things aren't going to affect that. Now, that's not to say that there aren't important textual variants. I also don't want to downplay the fact that there are some of these textual variants that do make an impact on the text, the question is whether they make such an impact that uh, it starts to blow up some of our theological perspectives. And I would profoundly say that that they don't. They don't affect that. You know, whether there's a text that says that Jesus, and this is an example. Actually, I think that Bart Ehrman points out in in the Gospel of Mark um, where it says that Jesus heals a man, and uh, there's a difference between the word orgisthes uh, in Greek and the word splagnisthes in Greek. And uh, the one word means that, that Jesus was indignant, and the other word means that Jesus was compassionate. And so you could say, well, yeah, that, that impacts the way that we understand that particular healing. Was Jesus indignant? Was he annoyed at the person? Or was he compassionate towards the person? Now, whether it's one or the other, does that start to completely blow up the way we see Jesus? Well, no, because we see that Jesus acts in in just indignation throughout the the Gospels. Um, he, he acts in, in righteous uh, justice throughout the, the New Testament, and he acts compassionately. So could it be an important variant? I'm not saying that that is an example of one of the most important variants. I don't think it is. But it is an example of a variant which may impact the meaning of the text, but it doesn't blow up the way we see Jesus uh and so even with these important ones even with some of the more uh, tricky ones that that scholars res- wrestle through and once again that uh if you're interested go open your bible look at the footnotes and see what they say um because they highlight those types of things we're not blowing up any of the the doctrinal beliefs that you will see in a uh, systematic theology textbook that you will see in a a church or parachurch organization Uh, in their confessional statement, you're not going to find those things affected by any essential doctrine. Um, But at the same time, I think Bart Ehrman likes to make mountains out of molehills on a lot of those things and say, well, actually, even though this doesn't affect, you know, Christian doctrine as a whole, well, this really does affect the way that we understand Jesus and how he, he, uh, he operates in this way or in that way. And I would say that it's simply an overstatement. Uh, It's, it's making too much of too little, and at, at most, I think it's it's straining at Nats to try to be a little bit more sensational than I think the data actually bears out to communicate to us.
1: Hey, man, I, th- I think that is great for people to see that example and also to hear from his own words as well, which I think is very, very interesting. So I wanna switch gears with you here because you have, I, I love uh, your YouTube channel. I love a lot of the things you do, especially the new short videos that I've seen you put out that are really good. And one of them that you did that has a ton of views on there, and I and I think is really really important because people may hear this name that I throw out there and go, oh well, I don't listen to that anyway, anyways. But when we talk about Joe Rogan, the fact is is that he has the most downloaded podcast on the planet. So it is important to realize that people are listening uh, for this guidance, and you do a great job explaining one specific thing that he has actually brought up quite often concerning his view on who Jesus and Christianity as a whole and kind of this whole theory regarding psychedelic drugs and Jesus. And, and what on earth does this have to do with Christianity?
2: Yeah, I have to admit that when I originally started hearing Joe Rogan say this on his podcast, I really didn't know what to do with it and just completely dismissed it. Um, but he kept bringing it up and I actually started to hear it from other people around me. Um not not a huge amount, but enough that kind of made me go, okay, maybe I need to look into this. Uh, what what guys like Joe Rogan, um, who is a big proponent of psychedelics to begin with, uh, <laughs> what he talks about on his podcast occasionally is the work of an individual named John Marco Allegro. And now John Marco Allegro was a legitimate scholar, biblical archaeologist, and Dead Sea Scroll expert. And I think some people, when they like hear what what sounds like, and I'll explain what it is—a crazy theory—and then they look the author up. They go, "Well, uh oh, you know, this isn't some wackadoo hippie. Um, this is someone who was a legitimate individual within the academic institution who was one of the original scholars who investigated the Dead Sea Scrolls when they were discovered. And so that can throw people for a loop. Um, the problem is. Uh, That throughout Allegra's publications, what he does is he connects the development of language to the development of religious narratives and rituals. So he used etymology, which is the study of words, and connected particular important words in the Bible and uh, a few other ancient religions to hallucinogenic experiences from plants. So based on that, he came to the conclusion that Jesus did not exist. That the Gospels were a hoax, and that what Christianity turned into is nothing more than a misunderstanding of ancient fertility cult rituals in uh, the object of the worship of a psychedelic mushroom. Now, that sounds crazy when even it, I say it like that, but this is, is what he published in this book titled The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross. And one thing to keep in mind is that uh, no scholar from any background, whether that's religious or secular, either in Allegro's day or now accepts Allegro's theory and its conclusions. Uh, And it's not that it's because it's fringe. It's because when you actually start to evaluate what Allegro says and the way that he comes to those conclusions, it's just, it's just not the way you would come up with concluding that historical figure, Jesus of all people didn't exist. Um, The way that he evaluates the words that he breaks down uh and the connections he makes between particularly uh ancient sumerian and semitic religions um it's interesting i guess it's a little bit convoluted to be totally honest because he goes into the sumerian and ugaritic and um the hebrew and the greek and and i'm a person who actually studies these languages and are interested in them and i found myself getting lost with allegro at times uh but what he does really is it's based on a, a a genetic fallacy, uh, which is the etymological fallacy. And that states that a word or phrase's true or proper, proper meaning is derived directly out of the oldest meaning of said words or compounds or components of said words. So not only does Allegro basically ignore all of the evidence for the historical Jesus, not only does he kind of ignore all of the things that we can derive from the historicity and reliability and trustworthiness of the Gospels, he kind of brushes over them, And he doesn't even he doesn't even address them. Um, And I think ultimately that's the strongest rebuttal is, you know, if Allegro is is trying to come up with this theory that Jesus never existed. Well, you can't just leave the mountain of evidence aside and then just start asserting something else uh, despite that. Um, But even if we leave that aside, the way that Allegro starts to get his conclusions uh, for trying to connect hallucinogenic experiences through. The study of words—it's—it's it's based on a logical fallacy. We don't trace the meanings of words and how they were originally used to the time frame that they're being used in a particular instance in order to come up with their meaning. I mean, uh, I use a number of examples in the video, uh, and I'd encourage the listeners to go watch that on my YouTube channel. I think the one I use is um, "awful." You know that um, uh, the word "awful." Uh, even just a few hundred years ago, used to mean full of awe. But if I wake up in the morning, I turn to my wife and say, honey, you look awful this morning. You know, it's going to mean something else, right? <laughs> She's not going to see that as a compliment. That's going to be an insult. And so there's a different meaning. It meant something originally, but it means something completely different now. And then there's words that don't even have the, the necessary uh, uh, derivatives of the components that make up that word, something like butterfly. The butterfly, as you know, the insect, has nothing to do with butter, and it is not a fly. I guess you could argue that it flies, but um, when you analyze the etymology of that word, it doesn't necessarily get you to a conclusion to tell you what that word means or how we should understand a further meaning behind that word simply by breaking apart the compound words. This is what uh, Allegro tries to do time and time again, and even scholars within those particular linguistic fields in philology, when they evaluate this stuff, they say he's really not making as much sense as he thinks he's making. So um, it's very popular in, uh, with Joe Rogan and in particular circles that want to promote uh, particularly psychedelic mushrooms. But I think at the end of the day, it's, it's super, super fringe. It, the, it doesn't add up when we actually evaluate the data. And despite it, it's sounding very um, maybe interesting, uh, it 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 really it's it's a lot that comes to naught um, in the end. So I for a little bit of a further explanation, I'd encourage listeners to go look at my video on YouTube where I talk about that. Uh, but when you hear these sorts of things uh, espoused by Joe Rogan or others, I think make sure you look into them and see. Okay, let's take all the objections seriously. And uh, what are the arguments that are being made? And then do they actually add up? And then what are the rebuttals to those particular objections? I think we should do this on all sides because it helps to shore up how we understand what other people believe and what we believe. Um, But with something like the sacred mushroom and the cross, uh, it's really more fantasy than it is um, fact.
1: No, I think that's so important. And it is really important that we do answer these things. And we will put a link from Wesley's video in the description of this because I do want to encourage you guys to check that out because it is really important to have guys like Wesley Huff that are out there saying, hey, I'm going to give an answer to this because I do like digging into this. And it is so important that we have resources like we have with Wesley Huff here. And I wanted to get to, I guess I probably only have time for one more topic. And you've done a, a video on this as well on your YouTube channel. And once again, we will put... A link to this in the description, so please go check that out. As soon as you're done watching this, go click, go watch. He's got some great stuff and some shorter and longer videos on canon and on a bunch of different topics as well, but specifically when it comes to the book of Enoch. And this has become a very touchy subject. We've did an entire hour and a half, I believe, episode on the topic. I mean, the book of Enoch, because people see it quoted in the book of Jude and say, Wow, are we have we been hidden are these books hidden from us? Is Enoch supposed to be in the Bible and we're really supposed to have it? So, I just I got to ask you why would Jude quote from Enoch if it's not supposed to be in the Bible and should the book of Enoch be in the Bible?
2: Yeah, it's it's a, it's a good question because like you said, um the uh only unambiguous quote in the book of Jude is from what we refer to as as First Enoch. And uh, this was a, a very popular piece of Jewish literature in the the decades previous to Jesus and clearly in the time frame of Jesus because uh, Jude quotes it as something that he clearly thinks his audience is aware of, is interested in. Uh, I think we can say a few things. Um, the Enoch that uh, Enoch is, is named after is a- attributed to the great-grandfather of Noah. And from the time frame that this particular document comes from, I think we can unanimously say that Enoch was not the author. So uh, although it's uh, pretty ancient, the only existing full copy we have of first Enoch is from the 15th century. um, And it's in Ethiopic. Uh, But fragments of different sections in Coptic and Greek and Latin and in Aramaic all exist although they only contain portions of the documents. So they contain enough that we can say, okay, we know what this is talking about because we can can compare it to the later Ethiopic manuscript that we have. And and like I said, while the author of the book is attributed to Enoch of Genesis, who's the great grandfather of Noah, the writing itself probably doesn't go older than the 400s BC. And some sections that exist today Uh, we can actually say were written after the time frame of Jesus. So it wasn't a complete document. What we refer to as first Enoch now is kind of an amalgamation of uh, a bunch of different writings that come together. It's true that during the Hellenistic period of Judaism, starting about 200 years before Jesus, Many ancient uh, biblical characters became the subject of extra biblical and apocryphal literature. So these are documents that we refer to sometimes as the pseudopigrapha. So think of pseudo meaning false. And uh, graphia, right, graphic means writing. Uh, Those are two Greek words. And so think of these as, as false writings, right? That they have an author attributed to them, but we know that That wasn't the author of the actual document. So, what we do have, we can trace the earliest portions of what we call First Enoch to both Aramaic writing and style. And so, that's important because the books of our Old Testament, we can all trace in their originality to Hebrew. And we can't do that for Enoch. We can't actually do that for any of the other uh, Deuterocanonical books that are, say, in the Catholic Bible either they all have either an Aramaic or a Greek origination. And that means that we can actually pinpoint the time frame that they're being written in because uh, both Aramaic and Greek, are um, they come after Hebrew. Uh, at least Aramaic in, in some capacity uh, comes after Hebrew. It was the language that was spoke, spoken in Babylon. And so after the Babylonian exile, when the Jews come back to Jerusalem, that's why they're speaking Aramaic. In Jesus's time um, because at that point they uh, were saturated in in Aramaic culture and language and so by the time you get to Jesus that's just what they're speaking and then obviously the Greeks under Alexander the Great take over the ancient world and then Greek becomes the language of the ancient world and so if these documents are coming in these later languages uh, it, it's usually not always but usually a red flag that you know this is probably later Um, now the, I think what we can say is, is that the, the book of first Enoch is interesting. Uh, it it tells us a lot about what Jews, particularly in the, the time around Jesus were thinking about things like angels and demons, and, um, there's sort of this uh, apocalyptic flavor to it. Uh, but beyond that, we do know that the Jews of Jesus's time did not consider it scripture. We do know that the Jews considered it uh, a valuable piece of literature, like other valuable pieces of literature. But I think just because Jude quotes it doesn't doesn't then necessitate that it is scripture any more than when Paul quotes philosophers, when he quotes Greco-Roman philosophers, that he thinks those are scripture. What I think the authors of the New Testament do occasionally is that they draw from material that their immediate audience is aware of would understand, and then they use that as like supporting literature to make particular points. That's exactly what Paul is doing in when he's he's connecting with uh, the Greek Gentiles in the Book of Acts. He's quoting them, their philosophers, and then he's using that sort of point of commonality to articulate a particular theological point about the truthfulness of the gospel over and above in the philosophy of the Gentiles. Um, I think Jude is, is doing that to some degree. Um, the book doesn't need to be inspired to be useful. And Enoch appears to be both common enough for Jude to quote it in his epistle, assuming his audience knew what was uh, being talked about and that the stories within it contained kernels of truth that Jude is willing to draw from. So uh, I think when we're talking about the book of Enoch, we shouldn't be scared of it. In fact, I have on my bookshelf. I have a copy of the Book of Enoch um, right here, 1st Enoch, uh, it's in translation um, from the uh, Aramaic and Coptic, and so, um, you know, if you're interested, go read it. Uh, We shouldn't shy away from being exposed to these documents, but I think it's important to remember that the Jews in Jesus' day never considered it scripture. Uh, There's a reason why we don't consider it scripture. Um, that it's sort of an amalgamation of different writings that kind of get grouped in together, associated with uh, some particular thoughts on what was going on um, around the time of the, the flood and um, some angel and demonology that, that was kind of being articulated and fleshed out in the, the decades and centuries around Jesus's time frame. So, it's good, it's useful, it's interesting, it's not inspired. Uh, Read it out of interest, um, but don't read it uh, for devotional material necessarily.
1: No, I think that is such an excellent answer. And we have been talking with Wesley Huff, and I want you guys to go check out not only his YouTube channel, as well as you can connect with him on Facebook and Instagram and so forth, but also go to wesleyhuff.com. And I know that you have a number of resources on there, but there are things on there you can go and grab. I know you have entire presentations on Islam on the Trinity, I, I believe, how we got the Bible. And there are just wonderful infographics that you've put together that people can grab and look and learn. I know I'd love to have you on the show and just talk Islam in the future. I, I'm being from Pakistan and now having your background on, on studying the scripture. I think that'd be awesome. But you have been an absolute blessing. And I hope you guys check out more of his stuff because I think you're going to put out some more and more good stuff as you continue you know, going down this road. And, and you're an awesome brother, bro. And I want to thank you for joining us today.
2: Yeah, no, thank you, Chad.
1: (laughs) Praise the Lord. And and God bless you guys. Make sure to check out WesleyHuff.com and also go check him out on YouTube, Facebook, and everywhere else. God bless you guys.
0: You've been listening to the Good Fight Radio Show brought to you by Good Fight Ministries. If you're blessed by this show and would like to partner with us, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash goodfight. Or you can write to us at P.O. Box 2202. Simi Valley, California, 93062. Or call us toll free at 1 866 JC Truth. That's 1 866 528 7884. We hope you'll tune in next time on The Good Fight Radio Show.